Welcome to uh, the Helix Center for Interdisciplinary Investigation of the New York Psychoanalytic Society and Institute. I'm Rob Penzer, Associate Director of the Center. Uh, before I turn the program over to Beth Hayes to introduce this, the last Helix Roundtable for this calendar year, I wish to entice you and entreat you. First, the entreaty. As we near the holidays, and hence the traditional time of giving, please consider giving back to the Helix Center in recognition of and appreciation for the stimulating and always free programs we've brought to you, our community, and will continue to bring to you with your generous support. Go to our website, thehelixcenter.org, <coughs> click the donate button, and follow the instructions to make your contribution online, by mail, or by telephone. Now the enticement. We have in the works some extraordinary roundtables coming your way in calendar year 2013 on synthetic biology, the topography of fear, known and unknown, complexity and emergence, love, icons, God in different religions, to name but a few. Follow us on our website, on Facebook, and Twitter for announcements about these roundtables and next year's poetry, music, and film events, too. If you're not on our mailing list, please go to our website, sign up with your name, and make sure that you also enter your email address. Now I'd like to turn things over to Beth Hayes of our executive committee, who deserves great thanks today for developing and single-handedly organizing today's roundtable on animal language. Thanks, Beth. Um, this is Chris Clark here on my left. Chris is the director of the Bioacoustics Research Program at Cornell's Lab of Ornithology and is a senior scientist in the Department of Neurobiology at Cornell. Um, he works at the interface of science, applied engineering, industry regulation, and NGOs. Um, Dr. Clark's work includes monitoring of large whale distributions and other oceanographic studies using passive acoustic detection and aerial surveys and genetic and photo ID data. He and his staff have developed a suite of analytic procedures and metrics for understanding the acoustics of ocean ecosystems and their loss through human interference. And he uses these collaboratively with other research departments and institutes also. And then over here we have Dr. Ray Doherty, Associate Professor of Linguistics at NYU. Um, Dr. Doherty completed his PhD combining electrical engineering work at MIT with studies of coordinate structures and recursion in language at the Linguistics Department at NYU under Noam Chomsky, interesting lighting. He went on to write two, a number of books, the first two of which were signal, uh, Digital Signal Processing, which uses uh, code to design microcircuitry for speech recognition, and Natural Language Computing, which is on the use of uh, Chomsky's universal grammar to represent English, French, and German in a prologue computer language. And most recently, he's been working on the evolutionary biology of the inner ear, using some mathematical representations and analog digital converter models to understand human sound processing processing and how it's evolved over millions of years. Okay, over here we have uh, Dr. James Fuller. He's now Dr. James Fuller as of a few weeks ago who uh, recently defended his doctoral uh, dissertation at Columbia. His research focus, focused on the evolution and expansion of vocal signal repertoires focusing on the communication systems of blue monkeys. He has also lectured on the evolution and usage of communication systems in birds and mammals and the sensory systems of vertebrates. And then we have Dr. James Higgum over there. He is an assistant professor of biological anthropology at NYU. Um, is it Higgum or Higgum? 
I am. I but it's am. okay. All right. Sorry. <laughs> I am. My, my chance. His research interest is sexual selection and communication and primate signaling, signaling behavior um, from a variety of perspectives that he uses, genetic, neuroendocrine, behavioral, and morphologic. He studies everything from um, macaques, baboons, and guenons. Guenons. Guenons, yeah. Uh, 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 to a game theory signaling, signaling models and computational models of primate perception. He's author of a number of dozen publications and the guest editor of a number of journals on primate signaling, primate coloration, and multimodal animal communication. And then finally, we have Dr. Diana Reese, uh, who is a cognitive psychologist and professor in the Department of Psychology at Hunter and uh, the Department of Biopsychology and Behavioral Neuroscience at the Graduate Center of CUNY. And Dr. Reese uh, develops, uh, directs the Dolphin Cognition Program at the National Aquarium in Baltimore and studies elephant cognition at the Smithsonian National Zoo. Um, I had the great good fortune when my kids were little of having a special backstage dolphin tour with her at the New York Aquarium, where she was then the director of the Marine Mammal Program. And um, so in addition to her scholarship in cetacean and animal cognition and the evolution of intelligence, including pioneering work in the investigation of dolphin abilities through underwater keyboards and responses to the mirror, Dr. Reese is known for her protection of dolphins in the tuna industry and the rescuing of stranded marine animals everywhere, such as Humphrey the whale. Um, her most recent book is The Dolphin in the Mirror. Um, so those are our panelists, and I will just throw out to you the question of what do we mean when we say animals communicate, and let you guys go from there. Maybe a good way to start off is to sort of define the word communication, and in the essence, I mean, there are many different definitions, but it really comes from the Latin word meaning to share, to exchange and share signals. And I, we all agree pretty much that's a real basic, about as low as we can go, sharing signals. And I think the one thing that I'd like to throw into the, throw out there today is that you know we used to think that we were the only communicating species. We really did. We thought we were the only species, certainly with language. And for a long time, we thought that we were the only species that could think and, and or could communicate in any meaningful way. So um, I think one of the things that I, is in, is a is a big idea is that all animals communicate in some way. So maybe we can take it from. So. Um, a uh, sort of caveat to that is the notion that the communication is intentional as opposed to is it, a deer is not communicating as it rustles leaves as it runs through the forest. Right? <clears throat> One of the components of this notion of communication is that it's intentional. It's, it's not some, some byproduct of an action. But but there's a difference between evolutionary intentionality and cognitive intentionality in the way that we use it. I wouldn't say most animal communication is intentional. Like if a baboon has a large sexual swelling or a little insect flashes a light to another that... Speaking of communication. That, that um, I mean, you know, evolution has acted to for signaling to occur over evolutionary time. Like it's not that a female baboon is thinking... I'm going to grow that morphology on my on my hindquarters so that I can indicate my ovulation. Right? I mean, but there's still clearly communication going on there. So I wouldn't say. I mean, there's a difference between signals which have. I think there's two different issues. Like, if you're talking about a deer rustling in the forest, you could you could argue that that's a cue rather than a signal. Right. And there's the whole cue signal debate. But then the, there's a separate there's a separate argument I think about the difference between signals that have been selected for over evolutionary time and what goes on in here when 
analog signal. Mm -hmm. So you brought up something very interesting. <laughs> signaling right here. Um, <laughs> this is going to happen every few minutes. Only when, only when very good points are made. So <laughs> I, I, think, I think one of the points actually that Diana said is that, that people, um, I, I think what you said was that people didn't realize or didn't at least accept that animals, that non-human animals communicate until relatively recently. But I, I, and I think it, one of the problems with communication is how difficult it is to talk about it. In that the word, humans are an inherently linguistic species. We use language, we, we think linguistically, we communicate linguistically. Just about every example we ever give has a linguistic framework to it. And so we can't imagine any other way of communicating. And so when we find that non-human animals are communicating in non-linguistic paradigms or non-linguistic frameworks, we can't make sense of it, and therefore we dismiss it. And I think, that, and I think what James may, or, well, we don't because we're learned scholars. But I think a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people have a tendency to dismiss it. And I think what James was 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 uh, referring to was the fact that from an evolutionary perspective, there's a lot of communication behavior um, that's been that takes place on many many different levels. And I would assume that very few of them reach the cognitive complexity of human language or human communication. But that doesn't make them any less or more um, fascinating or evolutionarily important. No, I would, I would throw out this idea again. I'm throwing out ideas here that we don't know. I mean, we often say it's not as complex as what we do. And I think there's this vast sort of amount of ignorance about what we really know about the content of the signals, what it's actually conveying. And I'll give you a good example. When I was in graduate school, I was, I was actually a linguistics major. I was really interested in studying communication in humans and other animals and how they, how they use these signals. And I, I found that there was a man named Rene Guy who'd been studying the human, human whistled languages in the world. Now, these are languages where people send whistles back and forth, much like you hear birds, bird whistles or dolphin whistles, but it's based on the spoken language. So in that very nice way, we know what the content of that, those whistles are. And you hear sounds like now, if I heard that coming from a dolphin or a bird, I might just think, that's really simple, because what can you put in a whistle? But when you look at these whistle languages, they're conveying the words that we whistle. And that was a real lesson, I think, and a humbling that you can pack a lot of information into what looks like perhaps a very simple set of signals, three whistles. And those are actually words and sentences. So I actually would argue that we simply don't know in many cases what's encoded in those whistles. So James, you, you assume that, or do we assume that it, to, to qualify as having language or linguistics that it has to follow the, the syntactical and the grammatical rules of humans? Um, and I, so, do you want to make more distinctions made now or later? Now would probably be good. Sure. <laughs> I'm distinguishing between signs and signals on the one hand and symbols on the other. I'm going to guess we're not going to actually um, solve anything. That's that's just my prediction for the he day. He just came out of his PhD, so. <laughs> um, no, well, I think I think that that what I I think as as I was saying earlier that one of I think one of the inherent challenges in studying communication is its terminology and specificity in what we mean by it. I mean, I, I actually got about halfway through a book before, and I won't mention who it is in case they're here. Um, on language and whether or not apes have 
have language or the capacity for language, and not once in at least 150 pages before I threw it away did he define language. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I find that fascinating that we can actually question whether or not a species or even a, a group of organisms has the capacity for, for something without actually defining what the criteria of that are. And so I've, I've read very, very, very simple, simplistic definitions of language that speak to refer referential, semantism, syntactic capacities. Um, and if that's the case, then, then we may have some evidence of non-humans using it. But I don't believe that that's the case. So to answer your question again, to readdress it, so the whole world of semiotics and zoosemiotics, the, so the study of signs and symbols. So let's take the case of um, an animal that has a swollen rear and it's red. That could serve as a signal that's been selected for to attract other, a mate during a certain time, a signal. If we think about, uh, or a sign perhaps, if we think about a symbol, and, if, and the way symbols are defined, if we all agree, is it something that represents something else. I think we have evidence in the animal world, at least, that certain animals can be taught to use symbols. It may not qualify as language, the way we define it, but certainly we've seen with, um, with dolphins in training at University of Hawaii, and there's some evidence in some of the work I've done, although I haven't called them symbols, and in Alex the African Gray Parrot, work that's been done to train him on functional communication skills in some of the chimp language studies and the chimp communication studies. Those animals under double-blind conditions, without any cueing from the, from the uh, people who work with them, can use the word symbolically. So I think we have some evidence for that, and it doesn't mean we know how they use it in their own world, or if they do use it symbolically but they seem to have this capacity. And I think that's an important finding. So I hope that helps. I mean, I mean the, classic, the classic functionally referential example in animal communication is the Cheney and Seyfarth vervet monkey alarm calls where vervet monkeys respond in one specific way to seeing a snake and a different specific way to seeing an eagle and a different specific way to seeing a leopard. And individuals then, everybody else, has a specific response in response to the specific call that's an appropriate anti-predator response to that predator. Now that's the standard, like, when that first came out, it was in a science paper in 1980, and it was a, a big brouhaha at the time. And when that first came out, it was called referential communication. Um, and then it got switched to functionally referential communication because they weren't sure <clears throat> They didn't want to imply so much about the cognition of the vervet monkeys, and they were saying, "Heaven they, forbid!" Sorry, heaven forbid. <laughs> yeah, right. Well. So, so they wanted to say more that look, as long as as long as the monkey is, I guess they switched the emphasis from the signaler and what the signaler meant to the receiver, the perceiver, the second individual, what they could infer as a perceiver. And therefore, if you're walking through the forest as a vervet monkey and you see a snake, and that makes you give a certain call because it arouses you to a certain level, as long as there's a statistical association with you giving that call and there being a snake, such that whenever you hear that call as a perceiver, it always means there's a snake, you as a perceiver can create the referentiality. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't have to be a construct of the signal. It doesn't have to be that the vervet monkey sees the snake and thinks snake. The vervet monkey can just be aroused to a certain type of call by that stimulus. 
and the perceiver, as long as that level of arousal is always associated with the snake, it doesn't really matter what goes on the first vervet monkey's head. The second vervet monkey is able to infer snake regardless. So it became a more, it shifted towards a more kind of referential view to a more functionally referential. You know, all the, all the discussion you have of communication is pretty much between adults with some internal mental structure of some sort. Um, almost all the work I've done just is on signal structures. <clears throat> For instance, I, I think there's a lot of things that couldn't be explained using that kind of a model. For instance, the very first cochlea that was in an inner ear uh, was a very tiny little thing the size of a disc, and it was kind of brittle. And then it gradually turned into a cylinder, and that's what dinosaurs had. And then that stayed with the mammals for millions, hundreds of millions of years, until about 200 million years ago, and then you got the double helix, which the human beings have, which is a spiral. And I, I told people I would work in the word helix <laughs> into the talk. So there it is. That's one already. Uh, but in any event, if you try to account for why it evolved in these different ways, first it's hard to do, but the cylinder is still what birds have. And now when it broke off from the cylinder and became a helix, what happened was there's an animal called a tenrec, T-E-N-R-E-C. It's worth looking up. It's a crazy little thing. It lives in Madagascar. The mother has 22 children. It's at the bottom of the food chain. It looks like a small porcupine. But that's the first mammal there probably was. Uh, the second one was something along the lines of a platypus. Now, the tenrec evolved a cochlea that's enormously big. Uh, ours is two and a half turns, this one's six and a half turns, because it could hear an enormously high frequency. And the big problem was predation from lizards and snakes or something that could hear that high frequency like a bird. The way they communicated was not orally. They have porcupine things and they flick their quills and it goes and the mother can immediately locate where the child is and the child can call to the mother. Since they're mammals, they must nurse, so the children must call to the mother and the mother must be in close contact. This is not adult. I think a large amount of evolution of the internal organs of the body that are responsible for many of the speech phenomenon, in fact, come from things like mother-child interaction. Now, the platypus, which is a, my favorite animal, I think. Uh, I didn't know there were so many. They're all over the place, apparently, in Australia. Uh, the platypus is a lizard-like animal, and it lays an egg. And then the mother hatches the egg, and baby has a little egg tooth, and then nurses it. But the mother does not have breasts. The milk oozes directly out from her fur and her skin, and the little animal licks it off. Now, they also have the bird cochlea. Now, why did the platypus not need to evolve a very big cochlea to nurse the babies? Well, it's poisonous. Anything that crawls into a platypus nest becomes dinner. It's not going to eat something. It's going to be eaten. If it eats, I don't know what it eats down there anyway. But it's a funny thing that this kind of thing happens. And also, if you just look at very complex signal communications, I've worked a lot with insects because they're somewhat different. And the reason I studied the insects is because the bird cochlea evolved to hear a very highly specific sound. And in fact, it's the sound made by insects. So let me just give you one example, and then I'll be quiet. Uh, suppose you look at crickets, and I've started studying crickets for any number of reasons, but it was in Santa Domingo. There's more crickets there than you can believe. Uh, if a cricket puts one wing up like this, and puts another wing out to the side, and there's another cricket over there doing the same thing, if this cricket wiggles this wing, the other one this wing wiggles. And if he wiggles this wing, then this wiggles. And if he wiggles both of them, then both of them wiggle on the other cricket. 
the cricket can send three completely different signals to another cricket across the room, but you will just hear it as they have extremely complicated communication systems. And when you think he's only got 80,000 neurons in his head, and he is processing signals that are beyond the human capacity to process, there's something going on here. Evolution must have, I mean, I, I sort of agree with many of the people that say evolution goes in jumps. In fact, that's my main work. Uh, I mean, just with the thing I told you about the cochlea, to transform from a cylinder cochlea to a triple concentric helical spiral, working the second time helix, uh, has to have happened overnight. It couldn't be that it took oh, 20 million years because the ear wouldn't work. It had to work, and that had to work overnight. And in fact, in the, I can show it to you a little later on. I don't want to get too boring too fast. Uh, the, the, the distance in a mathematical space from a cylinder to a helix is trivial. It's one tiny little thing away. So what happened was something, instead of growing this way, grew that way. And it's an interesting sort of seed to see how these signal complexities grew. And the other thing that's kind of explicable is not only mother-child. For human beings, that's very crucial because we're all mammals. But the human ear is almost identical to that of a cat, apparently. And cats were the greatest predators of human beings in the early days, apparently. And I don't know how they do this, but archaeologists, anthropologists, floss the teeth of the old, I don't know, saber-toothed tigers and find there's a human remains between them. Uh, it could very well be that the earliest predator, the human ear, tuned itself to hear exactly like what the cats hear. And it's my understanding that doctors that do operations on ears practice on cats. So it's pretty close. Uh, it's not the case that all mammals or all animals have the same kind of frequency response, but the cats do. And in fact, if you look at the, the way the human being responds to a specific kind of sound variation, which is called frequency modulation, which would be if I took a rubber band and twanged it and then went back and forth like that, uh, that would essentially be the kind of sound your ear is particularly tuned to. And that's particularly the kind of noise that would be for a lion with a roar. But actually, uh, big cats have now been shown to have a very special adaptation for infrasonic. For what? Infrasonic. Yeah, could well be. I mean, it's no, that's oh, oh, yeah. It's, uh, and that's actually pretty cats as well as big cats. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, the human ear probably just heard what it did. You know, heard the, it could localize cats in space. I mean, it's, it gets very complicated mathematically because if you have something with a constant frequency coming at you, the frequency goes up. So if a cat were roaring and running away from you, the frequency wouldn't go up and you might think he's standing still. But our ear is not fooled by that. See, it's a funny sort of thing. I know it's just a little complicated. I don't want to get into it, but uh, 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 there's no simple example I can think of. But suppose I had just a rubber band that was twanging it and going back and forth like that. And now suppose I had a tuning fork and moved it back and forth like that. The frequency would sound like it was going up when I moved the tuning fork towards you and low when it was going away. And it would sound like the frequency was going up when I pulled the rubber band apart and down when I pushed it together. Are those two sounds distinguishable by all animals? And the answer is no, they're not. They're very different to some. And some human beings hear the big difference and other ones don't. And I think that's why there's people, I don't know this at all, people that have perfect pitch and some people that have really sort of phenomenal sense that they don't like the sound of the, of the hall because there's too many reverberations or something like that. Where someone like me would walk in and wouldn't even know there was any difference. 
I mean, I think we see matching of sensory systems to signals very broadly across the animal kingdom. You know, all, all sensory systems are, are matched, and there's a lot of talk about whether whether um, the use of certain types of colours, certain types of sounds, etc., are sort of hidden channels targeted at specific species. So, for example, birds. Uh, so humans are trichromats, so we're able to see we have three cone classes in our eye, um, long wave, medium wave, and short wave, red, green, blue vision. But of course, birds have um, an extra super, super short um, cone, uh, and either a UV cone or an SUV cone. And, um, and they also um, signal using a lot of ultra um, a lot of ultraviolet colours, a lot of UV coloration, and a lot of people in the bird literature have discussed whether that UV might be a hidden channel. Right? Um, for for non-human primate, uh, for non-human primates, uh, catarrhines, anthropoids, there's a whole host of red coloration used. Since we evolved trichromacy, and we can actually distinguish reds from greens, from baboons to gelada to mandrills to vervet monkeys to the guenons, to all all these anthropoids use a lot of red. Coloration. And of course, for their dichromatic mammalian predators, it's um, you can't they can't distinguish red from green. So maybe it's a very it's a particularly good colour to use because um, it's detectable to other catarrhine primates. It would be detectable to bird predators, but not to other mammalian predators, not to large cats and things like that. They just wouldn't be able to see a bright red face in a in a green tree. It would just be all the same colour. So, you know, another thing that we tend to not think about is the subtleties in our non-vocal signaling. I mean, we're talking about colors and different kinds of visual signals, but for many of you in this room, if, you, if you're working with people and watching their behavior as they're speaking to you, you're paying a lot of attention to what they're doing. I mean, we know that about between 70 and 90% of what we communicate is nonverbal, from micro-momentary movements to the tone in which we say something. So I can say, Chris, really nice shoes. We hear the words, we hear the order, we get the basic idea, but what's the meaning of that message? And you're looking at how I'm looking at you, and really nice shoes, Chris. Yeah, you had a pretty strong <laughs> affect there. You know, yeah. like, and to me, so. that's the, that, that is the perfect uh, example of the difference between communication um, in terms of a signaling system that's evolved uh, and language that has meaning, that has a shared, you know, cultural elaboration on, on an understanding. And, 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 and maybe I oversimplify it, but I just, I see that as, if you had written down Chris Nice Shoes and handed it to him, he'd probably not be as annoyed with you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> because, I didn't really mean it, I like your shoes, Chris. Because the meaning in, in language is based on a shared understanding of this symbolically referential um, uh, constructs, whereas, uh, what we like to call body language, but your, your gestural, um, chemical, visual signaling uh, is is in, is intrinsic. Is, is it's our, in our species to some? I mean, there there are cultural but it, variations. But it's, but it's on still this. contextual. Even even in even in um, non-humans, it, it's contextual. If you show a if you show a rhesus monkey a picture of a female rhesus monkey during the birth season compared to in the mating right. season, he treats it differently. Mm -hmm. If you show an ambiguous um, face that could be interpreted as being a positive face, that could be interpreted as being a negative face. If you showed that to the same animal, when the animal has just had a vet check, 
versus when the animal <laughs> hasn't had a vest check, mm -hmm. they treat it differently. Because if bad, and it makes sense, it's, it's a form of cognitive bias, right? It's a emotion mediating attention. If, if bad things are happening to you and you see something that could be good or bad, if lots of bad things have been happening, maybe it's best to assume this will also be a bad thing. And if lots and lots of good things have been happening and you see something that could be good or bad, maybe it's safe to assume it's probably going to be good. So there's an awful lot of context that goes on. It, I don't think we're the only ones that add a lot of kind of context to this. If you, you can see the same signal given to the same individual and depending on recent experience, depending on things like this, it can be interpreted very differently. But I imagine, and I, I fully accept that, I think though that there are certain examples where there's probably very little variation. You know, alarm calls, indications of extreme aggression, things like that, where there, where there probably isn't so much, where selection wouldn't favor variation in response, where selection would favor high specificity in response. So it, it, it doesn't, I, I'm sure there are examples, but it wouldn't, selection wouldn't favor one to spend a lot of time thinking about what just happened when you hear a, a predator alarm call. Right. Um, selection would favor an instant and immediate response. Whether there's any, and it's interesting because the term mental construct or mental uh, you know, cognitive awareness gets tossed around a lot, and, and in my work I don't actually need to know what the animals are thinking to know that they're responding. And from an evolutionary perspective, what the animals are thinking might be the mechanism by which they respond. But for the trait to be favored, they just need to respond in a way that's beneficial. So if an alarm call is given and animals come raining out of the trees and that keeps them from being eaten, that's going to get passed on. Um, whether they think that there's an eagle or whether they think that trees have suddenly become uninhabitable is, is a secondary question. I have a question about that. Sure. I, I saw a movie once. Uh, my, my wife's father was a movie maker, and I saw a lot, a lot of documentaries in my life. And oh, I, my wife's father was a movie maker, and I've seen loads of documentaries. And there's this gigantic tree in Africa, I think it is. And the, the, the monkeys, or the, whatever they are at the top, uh, can see the eagles first. Mm -hmm. And the ones in the middle see the pythons first, right. and the ones at the bottom see the black cat. Mm -hmm. Now, each one had a different call. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so the guy at the top goes yelling in German, let's say, and then the guy in the middle speaks French, and the guy at the bottom is English, so they recognize each other's calls, and you hear them all yelling, but each one in their own thing. So they're trilingual monkeys. Well, well there's, there's a whole, there's a whole um, like particularly in West Africa, um, there are these kind of communication networks. So actually not even just monkeys, a range of monkey species and mongoose on the ground and various other, so you get mongoose and some, I think it's mangabees on the, on the ground and the various collarbones. Um, and, mm -hmm. and basically every single species, so they have a different call for a leopard from an eagle, from a snake, and every single species recognizes every single other species specific call. So if one, if a Diana monkey gives a leopard call, then you'll hear the black and white colobus monkey start to give its leopard call, then you'll hear that the, the all start to give the leopard call. So they all recognize all of them. What that if, was what one if of they the come up with a common word? When I was doing playback experiments Same thing in happens the field. In birds. Right? Yeah. And the, yeah, with, and actually, in, even that's a, that, I think that's an even more interesting and bigger leap is when um, hugely diverged taxa, such as primates and 
birds can actually respond to the alarm calls of the other. And, and, and I'm not familiar enough with the literature to know if, if anyone has any great opinions on whether or not those are learned responses or whether they're, they're um, evolved responses. But either way, it's, it's a pretty impressive. They're, they're, learned, they're learned responses. Um, so if you look through development, individuals are very, very poor when they're young. Right. And they show perceptual narrowing as they get older. Mm -hmm. So if you take a young vervet monkey, they give an eagle call to any bird. Basically, right, right. Yeah, but so they're, they're, they but are predisposed to this. They're so. predisposed right. to do it, but they're terrible at it. Right. But is that there's perception, there's right. perceptual narrowing, and you can see you can see. But um, we can say the same about the our taste buds, though. Sorry, we can say the same about our taste buds. There's perceptual narrowing that isn't necessarily based on learning. That's that's there's ontogeny is involved in it, but right. I'm not necessarily convinced that it's that we can distinguish clearly that uh, these are all learned behaviors versus their innate behaviors, and and probably like almost everything, there's there's a combination. The two, right. where you've got an innate, innate predisposition that is then um, affixed through ontogeny and development. As, as, the, as a little monkey grows up and is making wrong calls, everyone ignores them. No, yep. but yep. if there were like a day and they all say, "I think he's not pulling our leg," or is it, uh, or is there, does it a slow thing? They just that they shows, maybe, they and just maybe, shows yeah. narrowing through development. Yeah. and they do you tend. Know, they go from all birds to right. all large birds to all but, large but when, birds. But when, when would the rest of the people decide to fall out of the tree? Because if this guy's calling bird, bird every other day, so you right. call them people. They just, they just ignore them when they're They tend to ignore the juvenile. As they get older, they start to pay They'll look up, and then they'll look at the juvenile, and they'll go back to feeding. But one, of, but one of the interesting things we're talking about, the or the heterospecific responses, I do playback experiments uh, in the species that I study to, to look at responses. And one of the hardest things I always had was that I would play back the, the um the eagle call of blue monkeys to a group of blue monkeys to look at their response and then every other species in the forest would start responding and it would just throw everything off. It was really interesting but I wasn't looking at their responses. So it kind of I mean animals have, are going to live or die by the information exactly. they can take right. in. Sure. I mean the way animals have to learn what to eat. I mean they're going to learn fast and whether it's learned or somehow there's some hardwiring and it's been selected for, I mean you've got to figure out what the what information, you know, what the contingencies are basically. Right. And I think one of the things that was very compelling about some of the work we heard in vervet monkeys was something called the audience effect, mm -hmm. where you know you might argue, well, the vervet is hardwired or she's hardwired. There's a martial eagle up there, and it's going to just do this emotive call because at first people thought it was just, these were just emotive react responses. They weren't. What's they, actually they didn't call them referential calls. They called them semantic signals, mm -hmm. meaningful right, okay. signals. Right. So they weren't fixed action patterns, at least, right? Right. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there was some control, which is a big thing to think about that animals can control what they're doing, and so the vervets. If you if it's an ice if it's a single vervet and that martial eagle is there that snake is there they don't call <coughs> they only call if there's an audience if there are other vervets around so that's interesting and very mm -hmm. important when you think about it so but but it could just be that they're only aroused to that level when there are other individuals around too. I mean, there's a, you can always I mean it's Morgan's canon right you can you can right. always so what about meerkats yeah. Uh, they're really cute. Well, yeah. some of their alarm calling, they're sentinels, right. and they stand up, and they have jobs, yeah. and they, right. you know. Well, and I, and I think it's it's interesting. I, I recently sat in a room uh, full of um, people who looked at animal communication from a psychological perspective, uh, and I sat there and discussed my work from an evolutionary perspective, and there was a lot of uh, confusion. I think. But we worked it all out. It was lovely. But uh, I, I think that that's one of the things is that, that from an evolutionary perspective, 
we look so much at is this behavioral pattern or is this trait adaptive in any way? And the mechanism by which it becomes adaptive isn't necessarily part of the equation in terms of is it adaptive? And, and I, personally, when I, when I read some of the literature, I, I see a lot of people uh, wanting to make cognitive, draw cognitive conclusions based on behavior. Uh, and so I, when that, and I think that was, and I mean, to their credit, Seifarth and Cheney actually, you know, pulled back and the whole functionally referential took over for semantic. But the very first thing anyone thought when they said, oh, they, they use a different call for eagle and snake, and the animals respond as if there's an eagle or a snake when they hear that call in the absence of the predator, we immediately went to a linguistic cognitive explanation. And, and I think what, what James was alluding to is that, that there are so many more parsimonious evolutionary explanations that don't demand that degree of cognitive awareness. It's not saying that they aren't there, and I think people have heard me say things like this, suggesting, well, there, there is no animal. Absolutely not. I just don't think we've necessarily proved it simply by seeing when an animal does something, we can't necessarily um, uh, assign the same mental state that we would have when we did the same behavior. We just say they did it, and we'll have to try to figure out what they think. Have any of you ever watched hunting spiders? Mm -hmm. No. Like Porsche or something? Like yeah. Porsche? Yeah, amazing. Right. You watch this animal, which you typically would want to step on, yeah. right? watch it hunt. So these are animals that actually hunt other spiders. Mm. And you look at what their actions are and they'll, they're basically figuring out where from what position they're going to jump onto the, their prey, mm. how they're going to do it. And you watch them and you're going, wait a minute. They use, they use um, acoustic camouflage. They'll wait till there's wind blowing and it'll shake the, the web of their prey so that the prey can't necessarily detect them on the web. And you're going, yeah, this is a spider. Is a spider thinking? Right. It's the same with, I mean, some of the most complicated communication at all occurs in the social insects. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the honeybee yeah, waggle the dances. Honeybee waggle dances are phenomenally complex, where the, depending on how they, when they, the honeybee gets back to the nest after finding a food source, depending on how they um, dance in the nest, the angle and, the, and for how long it tells exactly the distance, the angle you should fly with respect to the sun and for how So do we long. agree that that's language? Absolutely. You do or and don't? I don't. And, here, and, and, and one reason I will say it's fundamentally different, for, well, again, I would just want, for the record, we still have not defined language. So I can say it's not language, but I won't tell you what I think language is. But one of the big differences is that um, you can raise a bee in isolation uh, or a novice bee, a juvenile bee that reaches maturity, and stick it in with the hive, and it will do the dance the same way as its um, fellows. Not right away. Are you sure? Mm -hmm. oh, all right. I will, I will bow to your experience then. Uh, my reading of it was that they were... Um, you know that bees go through a whole series of changes in their lives sure. to, to adapt to different roles in the hive. No, no, absolutely. So you can't just take any old bee and stick it in there and it's going to do what you want it to do. True. Uh, my reading of it was that novice bees were still capable of both interpreting and, and producing um, the correct waggle dance, the correct... Nectar dances. If they've been put into the right state of mind. But whereas, but no. I'm challenging you. Bring it. Um, but there's no. But I'm not aware of any human that has ever been raised in isolation that no matter what his state of mind could ever start speaking a language that they had not been taught. 
So the and this goes back to your friend Noam Chomsky. I mean, the capacity for language is very different from the but language itself. If I dropped itself. you in a beehive, you wouldn't do too well. I would do a very poor job <laughs> of, 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 at most things, actually. Yes, um, but I, I think one of the one of the things that really distinguishes at least my view of language versus um, inherent or evolved or inherited uh, communication uh, modalities of communication is that language, not language the capacity, but language the, is there another word? What, what would we call French? An example of a language rather Just, than language. Well, the language, language in, in the field I'm in is, is a very specific, defined right. thing, and all these concepts of meaning play no role. Right. All these okay. concepts of what? Meaning. There's no particular right. reason to assume it has a meaning, uh, but it does, you know it happens to when we use it. But in the theory of Chomsky, that communication is a secondary role for language. Uh, and in fact, what it is, it's a, it's a series, it's just a very complicated series of strings of symbols that people recognize, and they know some of them are good and some of them are bad. You know, when you stop to think about what a person knows, uh, these are standard examples. If you went to a major library in New York City and opened up any book, I don't care what it is, and put your finger on a page and took that sentence and wrote it down, how many more books in the library would you have to read till you came to that very same sentence again? And the answer is, you, it's, it's not in any other book. Right. If it's 20, sentence, 20 words long, it's not in any other book. Now, where in the world is there anything that human beings can do that they can immediately recognize a 20-word sentence and tell you whether it's grammatical English or not when there's a bazillion, trillion, gadillion of them. Uh, and the thing is, it's a very odd capacity. It's probably related to the concepts of numbers. And it turns out every human being is a prodigy for that particular kind of symbolic logic. But the people that are particularly good at this, unfortunately, attend not to be articulate. Uh, uh, and in particular, Alan Turing and these people, you know, it's very difficult to understand what they have, but it is very odd to see that human beings have this odd ability all around the world with no particular instruction. Look, suppose I say, just give you, I don't want to give you too many linguistics things, but suppose I say, he is tall, he is not tall, he isn't tall. And I can say, you are tall, you are not tall, you aren't tall. And I can say, I am tall, I am not tall, I am tall. Now, none of you is going to go home and say, well, he's a professor and he said amped, so I'm going to start saying, I am tall. It's not going to work. Amped became ain't in English. Now, why? I, nobody has any idea. But why don't people use amped? Nothing wrong with it. And why did they pick up ain't? And then once they picked up I ain't, they would say you ain't and he ain't, and they put it everywhere. And then in some dialects, you can say I haven't, have not a book. You can say I ain't a book. So it moved from to be to have. There's very strange generalities. If you take the word himself, uh, John saw himself. Everybody knows what it means. Shakespeare never used any reflexives. This came in in 1600. You can date it precisely. But then you said she likes herself and two dialects came off. One said, I like myself, and the other one, I like me-self. See, since himself was the first one, you don't say his-self, particularly. Well, you should say, I like me-self, but you don't. Why? I don't know. It's just, uh, it's just strange. There was nobody saying you should say this and not say this. There were huge, I mean, in the United States, there were huge arguments as to whose dictionary was the best dictionary. And the Merriam-Webster won because he gave a free copy to every editor of every newspaper in the United <laughs> States. That had nothing to do with academia. 
And the other one, the Columbia, didn't give anything away, so nobody uses the Columbia spellings or anything. They all think it's weird. Columbia well, I mean, not how to spell. Yeah, didn't know how to make money. That's what they didn't know. <laughs> uh, but it's a funny sort of thing. But language is a very formal kind of thing when you stop to think of what you know. Uh, it's, if I gave you a big, long sentence, everybody could correct it. And everybody has razor-sharp intuitions about these things. And take a word like eek out. I can say I have a student that just barely ekes out a living. And I can't say, but he's been eking for years. <laughs> he's eked for 30 years, and now he's trying to work it out. Now, how in the world do you know that you can't say eek? You can say eek out. Your mother didn't tell you. Come on. Nobody said, always say eek out, kid, if you're saying eek. Uh, it's just something. It's some pattern to English that has nothing to do with You've also never heard that eat. term, right? So wait a minute. You're saying that, the, that somehow there's inherent rejection of the phonetic... Yes, inherent, there's an inherent pattern to English. We don't know what is it is. not acceptable. So if you raise someone in a cage in Borneo and taught them this, but then they'd never heard the word eek, then if they heard eking, they would say... Well, you could that's probably teach right. them that eek meant something else. But take the, you go back to the one that's really hard, the amped. No, I don't <laughs> think. If I used amped and told everybody it'd be a dollar if you use it too, it's not going to catch on. Well, not now because it's not socially acceptable. Yeah. But uh, that's not as much more than it's not socially acceptable. It's, oh, it doesn't it's match a pattern. There's some, well, you've got to remember you sent the syntax. There's some syntactic pattern. Uh, you, look, I, I'm not tall, and I can say I am. No, I'll tell you, 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 you aren't tall, and you're, you're not tall. But I can't say you aren't tall, and do a double contraction. I bet you could say that, and that, if that became socially yeah. acceptable, it'd be fine. We do that all well, the time. We, we develop new. Look at rap. I'm from North Carolina. Yeah. You should hear what well, people say. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you could make up anything you want and sell people they're going to so have to use it. So you think language is deterministic? No, I, I, well, I think it's like mathematics. I think it's, nobody's going to come, come up and tell me there's a new integer between 3 and 4 nobody's ever seen before. It's not going to happen. And language is very much like that. I, I, I think, I'm not sure that I fully agree with you, but I, I do think there are rhythms in, I mean, human, human language has this bimodal, um, this bimodal rhythm, and all human languages have a rhythm of between three and eight hertz, mm -hmm. which is the the, um, the rate at which, at which all languages, um, everybody communicates within all languages, and and it has this bimodal kind of um, syllable, ba boom, ba boom, ba boom, ba boom, problem right. kind of thing, and that that is very very unique. Like um, non-human primates don't show that bimodal rhythm in any type of so that doesn't um, mean that they can't have language. Right. No, but I no, think no, but I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that whether I agree with that or not, I, right. do, I do agree that there are rhythms to human Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a, there's a macaque study. Um, so since you shot down my B argument, I'll bring up the macaque study, and hopefully you haven't read that, too. shoot it down. It's just a challenge. There was a macaque study that, that, that um, I, I'm one of those people who really get very uncomfortable when people start talking about captive studies um, because I do all field work, but I'm really glad that the information is available to us. But uh, they raised macaques in captivity uh, without ever, I think they took them from their birth mother at, you know, at one hour old, and they were never exposed to the vocalizations of their own species. And by adulthood, they had developed the entire 
we already discussed repertoire, uh, whether or not that was a real thing, but they had developed the entire um, vocalizations and used all the vocal signals. I, I'm not sure if they tested whether or not they used them uh, in appropriate context, but they used them all. Mm -hmm. and, and again, to go back to your friend in Borneo in the cage, there's no human that could ever develop um, any of the known living languages um, without ever being exposed to them. They are fundamentally different things, but I think where, the, where things get interesting is that... Birds. Uh, well, the Ocenes. I mean, there's different. There are different taxa that have that that show different um, degrees of learned versus not learned, and having these windows and all these different things. But I think I think one of the things that's really interesting is that that my understanding, which is extremely limited about human linguistics, is that, and, and this may be a horrible simplification, is that language. The, the spoken language or the written language or, or any sort of symbolic language that we use as a species reflects our cognition. We have this sort of inherent thought, or maybe it's not inherent, but we have thoughts in our head, for, for want of a better term. And then language is a way we use to express that. And I think that as a result, when we look at non-humans, when they uh, vocalize or gesture or any other way, we assume that there must be something similar going on. Um, and I don't know if that's true or not. I don't have an opinion that it's not. <laughs> well, the, 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 but I think Diana does. I think I do. <laughs> I, I want to jump in here. Because um, this is one of my favorite subjects right now. Because, again, you go back to ancient times, and the idea was that language and speech was inextricably linked. Right. Ratio and ratio is what they talked about. And that because we thought that no other animals were communicating, they did, or they didn't do anything that we could recognize as anything like our speech, even though birds are singing and dolphins are doing things and bees are doing it, we didn't know enough about that. We made the assumption, and it's continued to be an assumption, that language, that animal, other species are devoid of thought. So I'm going to. I mean, I think one of the things that's really important to realize is that, you know, the brains of most animals are oh, yeah. are composed of the same building blocks. There's nothing that different about it. The organization may be really different. The number of neurons, even the cell bodies, may be different sizes. Elephants and dolphins actually have bigger neuronal bodies than do many other animals. And we don't really know very much about the, our, even our brains now. But we've tended to make this assumption. It's almost like a religious or cosmological assumption that we are different from the rest of the animal world. We're at the top of the pinnacle, and everybody's below us, and nobody else is thinking. We're the only ones who think. We're the only ones who communicate using language. And language, the word language comes from the tongue. You know, we have a tongue, we use it, we're, we're, we think about speech more than any other body language, as we said before. And, you know, what, as we're finding more and more details, as we're discovering more details about other animal systems, we see that there's, there is more going on than we ever thought before, behaviorally, acoustically, in terms of sensory systems. And I just think we're kind of pompous at assuming that nobody else is out there thinking. We used to say, the question used to be, do other animals think? And I think the question has shifted. And I think it's no longer a question, do they think? It's how do they think? How do they think? Yeah. Or how do they communicate? One thing on yeah. that. Most of the, I mean, I've worked in a lot of this stuff long before I got into linguistics. And, uh, 
most of the people that worked with chimpanzees and the things treated them very nicely. Uh, the Georgia Institute of Technology one time decided they would put a monkey in an overwhelmingly deprived situation. And instead of giving it a banana, if it got the right answer, it would loosen the cage or open a window or let it breathe a little bit. And they tried like crazy to teach the animal what's called grammatical relations. No animal apparently can differentiate John touched Mary from Mary touched John. This is also across the board in all web browsers. You could be rich if you could figure out a way for a web browser to do what's called uh, thematic relations. Uh, and you can't. It's no, no, it's, you can do it for trivial cases, but it doesn't work in, most, in all cases. And so what happens is they were never able to teach an animal to differentiate John kissed Mary from Mary kissed John. And they did it by having a, Mary was a triangle and John was a square or something. And they would try to get it so that they would put the things up. Now some animals could learn verbs, like chimpanzees could learn verbs like kiss, touch, and things like that. Most animals can't learn a, a sign for, verb, for a verb. But every child in the world, immediately from the time they're born, knows it's not his fault. And it's, it's somebody else's fault. And they use grammatical relations all the time. He hit me. I didn't hit him. He hit me first. And the thing is, no animal, even with all the attempts they do to teach them grammatical relations, it doesn't work. And this is a huge thing right now, because I don't know if this is true, but it seems to be the entire web is going to be English. And they're going to have, when you put a question in in Spanish, it'll translate it into English and answer it. But in English, if you say, John took Mary the book, Mary has the book. But in German, if you say, Johann hat Marie das Buch genommen, it means he took it away from her. So now, when you're doing translations from one language to another, you have to know all the grammatical relations in all of these languages. It gets to be very puzzling. I have to challenge you on that one. Yeah. I'm Wonderful kind of breakthrough for me as a writer to start looking at other languages 
Well, each language is, is, has its own little idiosyncrasies to be much more mundane than prayer and resting. But uh, it, suppose you want to ask, uh, you're interested in painting something, you're interested in painting a wall. The web browsers will soon have dialogues with you rather than tell you. So if I said I want to paint a wall, I suppose I could go into a paint store here and they'd give me wall paint. But if, if in German, the word for Wand here, that's a Wand and a Mauer is outside of the house. But the word wall in English is both of them. So it could very well be if I'm dealing with some German guy, he'd say, is the wall inside the house or outside the house? Which is not something he, he, he might ask me down here because he'd give me a different paint, but you, it doesn't make any sense to ask, I want to paint a wall. And there's words in different languages that they'd have to ask you a, a lot of context. I mean, the farthest out one I know of, American, some American Indian languages, most languages make a difference between I, you, and me, and the singular and the plural, but some American Indian languages make a difference between whether you're standing up or sitting down when you talk to me. And that's because the chiefs, I don't know what it's all about, but something like this, the chiefs never ate until everybody else ate. And so if I'm standing up and talking to you, that means I'm higher than you in the social order. And so I can imagine somebody would say, John said to Mary, what time is it? And the guy would say, was John standing up? What was, was Mary standing up or sitting down? And this is going to happen to you in the future as Google tries to get data out of other kinds of things. Because in some, uh, we have a, a student from a, a I, I won't mention the culture, but it's a culture where he cannot come in and just say, Ray, would you please sign this? He has to say, how's your wife? How's your dog? How's your, how's your ch child? Uh, how, you know, what are you going to do later? And I say, what do you want? <laughs> you know, you, but they have to ask all these questions about your family before you can get down to things. And it's very interesting because that, that's, it's, a, it's a cultural thing. It's learned. That's certainly learned, I should think. You know? Ray, you just said something that I just want to, I just want to set a record straight here because I don't think that this idea that no other animal can learn anything grammatical through training. They may not use grammatical structures. We don't know enough to say they do or they don't. Yeah. But the study I think you're referring to was by Dwayne Rumbaugh, von Glasserfeld, and Gill. Is that the one? I don't remember. Yeah. It's so long ago. Since yeah, and that, that, that's a study actually I'm pretty familiar with. And what they did is they took a chimpanzee named Lana, and they trained her to use an interactive computer system. And she was trained to order, do, to either accept or don't, not accept grammatical sentences. And they were either grammatical or non-grammatical. She actually could do it. it was was it a, those blocks? She yeah, selexograms. And she actually did it. She was trained to do it and to reject non-grammatical. Yeah. It was a science paper. And then she actually used it in some novel ways to manipulate and get the, one of the trainers into this very sterile environment that you yeah. described as extremely sterile. And then years later, um, Lou Herman out at the University of Hawaii, and he, again, it was, it was a fairly rigid system, but he actually trained dolphins using food to respond to uh, a set of rules. And they were, they were, you know, take hoop to, you know, to window or take ball to hoop. And they had to do the correct behavior. So animals can be trained to do it. We don't know if they do that in their own forms, but they have that capacity. You know, so I think, I, I don't think it's completely accurate to say that no other animal shows it. And the other, the other point I just want to make, since we're talking about animal communication and language, is that, you know, we used, to, Chomsky and others have argued that we have these spe special syntactic structures, some module in our brain and that that makes that propels us to learn language with very little effort and that no other animals do it so if you're a human very young children can distinguish between pa and ba and ka yeah. and well that was evidence that we have these special structures but guess what other animals do the same thing you can play birds and you can play gerbils and other animals ba pa and ka 
and they learn to, they can distinguish those sounds too. So the view has moved, I think, yeah. in my in my world at least, the people, what I've learned, that we don't have, we certainly have Wernicke and Broca's area in the brain for production and comprehension, but this idea of processing sounds that happen to be language sounds may be much more due to general mechanisms for acoustic perception but also very than specialized. Specific. And a lot of the studies, if you did the reverse of that, mm -hmm. I, mean, it, I, I always have a, a quizzical opinion of, of tests of non-human animal cognition when they give them animal tests. Because yeah, yeah. I, I saw this study where they, they had this puzzle and they, they got a four-year-old human girl and they said, how long will it take her to do the puzzle? And she figured out the puzzle and she got the treat out of it. And then they got a bunch of chimpanzees through and eventually they did that. And they said, aha, we figured out that, that chimpanzees are about as intelligent as a four-year-old human girl. Yeah, right. And I said, stick that four-year-old human girl out in the forest yeah. and see how intelligent she looks in a chimpanzee context. And I think that's, yeah. so for example, we've done the same studies with, with non-human primates in terms of their ability to distinguish what are acoustically practically identical. Green did a study on macaques where he kept seeing these different responses to what he thought was the same call. And then doing, using spectrographic analysis, he found that there was this minute yeah. difference that we couldn't perceive acoustically, but that the, the uh, macaques were responding to categorically. And so in the same way that, that people, in, in, even among humans, people have a hard time. I lived in Thailand for a while, and people, it's tonal language, and I never could understand the difference, but to them it was very categorical. We're in the same species, so imagine the differences, how each species is, is genetically and, and physiologically uh, tuned to the specificity of, the, of their own communication systems. And, and when, the, when tests are fairer and more appropriate, they typically do much better. Yeah. So, so yeah. there was a whole host of studies in uh, rhesus monkeys where, that looked at pointing as a, as a gesture where the human observer pointed towards something and then, and then they tried to see whether the rhesus monkey would, would look, was capable of kind of following the attention of uh, another individual. And they didn't get any results, of course, but of course rhesus macaques don't point with their arms. And actually when they started doing it with gaze and with heads and things, then they started to do much, much better because they, they are actually interested in where other rhesus macaques are looking, but of course it's not a very fair test to um, show how they point. Um, just to come back to your point on the um, brain mechanisms of some of these things, so, I, mean, I think I broadly agree that a lot of the central structures are the same. There are some, some of the, and this comes back to what you were just saying before, some of the, some of the properties of human language that we do understand, like the bi like the bimodal rhythm and stuff. We do understand kind of the mechanisms that, that that's a coupled oscillation between neurons in the brain, right? And that, that's pretty yeah. much a unique human um, thing as far as we're aware, which, and that gives human the human language that unique um, rhythm cognitively. I'd like to come back to what you said. Yeah. Yeah. You said the, the, those poor monkeys in the cages, but they weren't feeding them very well, and they had to do with a minimal thing to even get some water. Uh, it wasn't that they just did grammatical sentences. They were trying to teach them the difference between John kissed Mary and Mary kissed John. But in children, very young ones even, that extends far beyond that. For instance, suppose there was a big ink stain on the floor, and somebody comes in and says, who put it there? I can't say, I confess, he did it. <laughs> Say, 
I, I, it doesn't make any sense. I can say I confess I did it. I can accuse him. But I can say I confess he did it. But now, suppose it's in my class, and the dean, the dean comes in and says, Professor, who put that ink stain? I can say I confess it was one of my students. Then I can point to him. All right, now suppose the president of the college comes in, and he says, who put that ink stain there? I can say I confess the dean did it. See, as long as there's a hierarchy of people, you can confess for all sorts of people if you're vaguely related to them. Now take something else. Suppose I walk out of the building here, and some woman comes up and says, I just won the Van Cliburn competition in piano. I can't say I'm very proud of you, because I don't have anything to do with it. You know? Now, if she had been one of my students years ago, and I'd said, oh, why don't you pick up the piano? Linguistics is dead. You know? And she went to the piano, then I could say, I'm very proud of you. you but I can't be proud of somebody. I don't even know who they are. And I can't confess for a large number of people. But in every, I don't know if this is true, but we tried it out on dozens of languages. The word confess is the same in every language of the world. And that sort of tells you there's something about who did it. And the other thing is there's a word for blame. Because the concept of agency to a child is suppose that you're a kid and you spill it on the floor and you said, who did it? The kid will say, I did it, but he made me do it. So it's not his fault. It's transference of agency or something. But, but surely, very complicated. But surely this is after a certain age. I mean, up to their three, I, I, up, up to their three or four, they're not even capable of, of conferring mental states yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. They fail false belief tests. But it's yeah. one of the very first things that's emergent in an intelligent brain. And it, it's not in any computer. You can't program this. It's impossible to even think of how you'd program it. And it doesn't seem to happen in any animals. We, we don't know what's happening in the brains of other animals, though, because we're we have no way we to know other. We, yeah, it's that black box. All we can do is, we know is, self can do is observe yeah. behavior. Yeah. So you can look at some so of like the work evolution. that Franz Duval <laughs> has done with primates and look at this idea of inequity. You know, and think about you know what's fair. I mean, we can sit there and you can have we can do two tasks. And if you know, Chris, I'm going to pick on Chris again. And if Chris has us do two tasks and he gives you a cappuccino for doing that, and I get that crappy glass of glass of water, I'm going to be pretty ticked off that I didn't get the cappuccino. And you can see primates will also feel that way. So the great apes will. The monkeys may not, but the great well monkeys do as well. And so they have a sense of inequity. They have they're, they're animals that seem to show empathy. They don't talk about it like we do in a way that we can understand. Maybe they do communicate it some ways, but we don't understand that. It, it gets us to the point of us being blind and deaf to what these other animals are doing. I, you know, because we can talk all about. The, I mean, what we're what we're doing here is we're still talking about human language. We understand human language. We're humans. We're talking about animal communic other animal systems. What do we really know about those systems when well, we can't what, decode them? But and I think that's why putting in an adaptive framework. Is a is a good place to start. Even even if the ultimate objective is to understand cognition, understand the way of thinking, I think putting in an adaptive framework first sort of levels the field because when it, it again to go back to that poor little girl that I wanted to throw in the forest with the chimpanzees to prove that that intelligence equation wasn't wasn't appropriate, is that that animals evolve within the social and ecological context of their species. Or, sorry, species evolve within their eco ecological and social niches. And so if, 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 if a particular trait wasn't beneficial or wasn't adaptive, it's not, we have this sort of hierarchy. I think humans have this sort of sense of, uh, well, in, in, we say words like intelligence and whether humans have superior or inferior intelligence. And, and I just think we have uh, species that have adapted appropriate strategies for dealing with their ecosystems and their, and their social context. And 
if language or the ability to communicate through complex syntactical structures was never necessitated or was never selected for, we would likely see its absence. And I think one of the things, and just because I'm talking, I'll keep going. Um, one of the things I noticed that we haven't mentioned is that when we, we tend to distinguish between human communication, and we call it, and we say language, and non-human communication, which we, you know, vocalization, whatever. But what about crying and screaming and laughing and smiling and all of the blushing. innate blushing? That's true. It's right up James's alley. Um, he studies coloration of faces. Not, not that he blushes a lot. He might now. blush. Now he's, he's blushing. blushing. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and a so, lot of communication, but no words. Right. right. And it, there's an enormous amount of what I consider non-linguistic communication evolved non-evolved uh, uh, inherited traits in, in terms of human communication that is utterly outside of the scope of, of linguistics and language. And when I look at non-human communication systems, they tend to, to appear to me a lot more similar to things like laughing and crying and screaming and smiling and blushing uh, than they do to Shakespeare. So you said something before that made an assumption about why we're sitting here, and that was that we were interested in cognition. I thought because Beth invited us. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought we were talking about animal communication. Well, and actually, it's well. I think that's I, and maybe I'm I'm creating a straw man here. But I think that a lot of the communication literature that I've read. Um, and I, I tend to be very focused on communication from an evolutionary perspective. I think there is a tendency to uh, inappropriately and often unintentionally conflate a cognitive mechanism for a, a, a behavioral or a ev evolutionary explanation. Um, but I think it's, so I think that that happens a lot, but then I think another thing that happens is that people who are interested in cognition look at communication. So in the same way uh, that humans uh, infer the cognition of fellow humans based on self-reporting, so we use communication to understand what one another is thinking. I, th I think part of it's a terminology problem because people, people in animal communication talk about signalers and receivers. So you have a, some sort of signal or sender, senders and receivers. You have a sender and a receiver and, and you communicate between the sender of receiver and then the receiver somehow changes their behavior. As, as soon as you have senders, you have a message that the sender has constructed, packaged up, and sent to the receiver. So there's this informational package somehow that's a product of the sender. Now I'm happy with informational constructs in animal communication, but I think they're a product of perceivers, not a product of senders. So if, if an individual, if I do anything right now, what it communicates depends on you. It depends on what you extract and perceive from what I'm doing. I, I can say all the, all the words I like, I can make all the gestures I want, I can do everything I want now, but the, the information that's in my communication that goes to you as the, as the perceiver is not a construct of me at all. It's a construct of you. So, so I, think, I think that the whole, I'm happy with information being extracted from animal communication, but I think it needs to be, as long as we're talking about it as a construct of perceivers, rather. so I think senders and signalers and words like this are unhelpful, right? Because they give the idea that somehow the message 
is a product of me rather than a product of you. And, and the, a big mistake I think that people make who don't study communication theory is that there's some inherent meaning in the message is what you're saying. There's nothing in the message itself. It's how it's perceived. It's in right. the meaning. It's in uh, the, but, in but, the but, that's what you're but, saying. But a message can be extracted from it. But yeah. that's, that's yeah, to the by perceiver. perceiver. But it's right. not, there's not an inherent message right. there that you can right. objectively look at. It's in the, yeah. So, so because of that, some people would argue that therefore we should just cut information as a concept out of communication. Look, information isn't, really? Uh, don't talk to me. The information can't be contained within animal communication because it's not, it's not a thing that's packaged up by, by senders. But as long as, for me, as long as the perceiver is able to extract something from something that they've observed and have a reduction in uncertainty about the state of the world, which is a true definition of kind of information, you know, a kind of Shannon Weaver type, mm -hmm. type definition, then I don't see what, how, how can they not have been informed in some way as a perceiver? Because I, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> This is going to get long. <laughs> but I, I think one of... I just did this recently. I, I just oh, really? did this, but I failed Sorry. miserably then. I don't expect to do any better now. Yeah, but uh, I actually had to pull that out of my introduction chapter, my whole, my whole diatribe against the information theory and animal communication. My, I think it's, it's, it's a question of interpretation, and I think there, there's different uses of the word information. I think most lay people use it as sort of synonymous with data. You know, so right. you're wearing a blue shirt. Well, that's, some, that's a piece of information. And then mathematics and linguistics. Right, but that's a function of you, because if you right. can't see blue, then you don't know that. Which is its own so it's nothing, it's nothing to do with me, right. it's about you. There's nothing yeah. inherent in it. But if you weren't it. wearing a blue shirt, uh, we wouldn't be talking about it. But I, interesting that you talked about the reduction <laughs> of uncertainty, which is an inherent, I, I take to believe, and I was, I was wrapped on the knuckles for this firmly, but I still take to be uh, a cognitive state. That uncertainty is a is a is a is a state of awareness to some degree, um, and and so information theory in the way it's used in communication is really talking about uh, a predictability or a state, and I think a lot of communication doesn't necessarily have anything to do with predictability. So, or so, state. so you wouldn't think that uh, because I'm not uncertain. You wouldn't think that a bee drone that's just seen a waggle dance. And now, now he's capable of totally flying straight to a food source mm -hmm. that they were completely unaware of previously. Has obtained any information about the state of the world from the Waggle Dance? Well, it depends on you how we say. how we how we construe the term information. So oh, I mean, planarians. You really, you really don't Which think that yes. they've gained information? <laughs> I know. This is. I, I told you, I would lose this fight. I, I would keep fighting it. One of these days, I'll figure out how to articulate. So it. what do we call, what, What's the word yeah. we use other than information? We, if you, you know, would like to look at the chapter in my dissertation or, that yeah, I pulled out. <laughs> I've, I've, I've said that, that signal content actually is a useful construct and that um, and the way I define it, and, and some would say that there's really no difference, and I use a, a rather sophomoric example, but you know, the whole, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? Absolutely it makes a sound. The laws of physics say it makes a sound. And the weight of the tree, the angle of its trajectory, how hard it hits the ground, what's on the ground underneath it, will determine characteristics of that sound. How the amplitude, the frequency, the degree of crackle or whatever you want, however you want to describe that sound. If no one's there to hear it, there's no information gained. There's no uncertainty changed. But there is content in that, If just to use the analogy of a signal, the sound that that tree makes, has characteristics that relate to the event. So in the same way, my voice is, has inherent as indexical properties about my body size. 
So if I holler out, there will be formants and all sorts of things you can measure, and it will relate to my skeletal length. But if none of you are here to hear it, there's no difference in, in, uh, in your understanding of my body size, but it doesn't take away from the fact that but that, that signal... But that's we can distinguish potential information yeah, from potential. perceived information. Sure, sure. I mean, it's yeah. fine. I think it's the same. That's what we talked about. And then, but then to go, just to push that a little bit further, if in a, lingu in a linguistic model, if I were to say to you, um, there's a person outside with a birthday cake just for you, um, that would be information Pretty to much. you. <laughs> I've been told that before. It's very important that we have an audience participation, but we really want to hold that question. Oh. Well, we're, we're going to go for about another. We should probably not end on information theory because right. everyone will end, end saying that James character really just lost it there at the end. But I, I, the one thing I would distinguish, I think, is that, and I have softened my, my objection to this somewhat, that I think the distinguishing characteristic is that in, from a hum, human linguistic and cognitive framework, we process information very specifically. We think there's a birthday cake out there and that will change. Now I'm no longer uncertain as to what's waiting for me. And now I will, my behavior will be based on my uh, conscious awareness of that outside thing. When we look at non-human uh, responses, there, there can be evolved responses sure. that have absolutely nothing to do with a conscious awareness of anything that was related to the signal itself. And so, that, to, so I don't, I think probably, as you said earlier, one of the problems is terminology. So it, depending on how we want to define information, I don't necessarily have a problem with it. But what I have a problem with it is the assumption that animal responses have to be based on some sort of awareness necessarily of the, quote, information in the, in the signal. I, I actually don't think most people start there, because I'm a cognitive psychologist. I think we look at animal signals and try to look at, you know, when we talk about, you can look at communication from the order in which the signals occur, the structure of the signals, how they're used pragmatically in terms of how do they function. And then when you look at those things, there are times at which you say, I think I'm seeing something systematic here. And then you can then design an experiment to test it further. But I don't really know that many scientists who have looked at signals that animals produce and say, oh, they're there's some heavy-duty cognitive underlying thought there without doing some pretty hard studies. I mean, I think people may say... too much say, of it in the alarm call. Yeah, yeah. you should read the primate stuff, people, because the, 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 the bystander interaction. Oh, they, get, well. they get worked up about it. In the well, that, that, that alarm call, the alarm calls. But for and a lot of the other... But the, yeah, I'm talking about outside sure, of that. Sure. With the bird people song, actually know what they're talking with about. Well, so right. I don't think people are really putting all that heavy right. cognitive stuff in. See, I think that's one of the problems here is that when you were, I think you were before describing this whole sort of uh, movement or the distinguishing between communication and cognition, I think one of the problems is that, first of all, I think some of this, these arguments are basically cul-de-sacs. They're, they're going nowhere, right? They're infatuations with our own self, right? right? And that cognition is a projection of our own abilities onto these other systems. And so you're, you're never going to find it because we'll always argue about whether it is or it isn't. Right. We'll come up with new terms and whatnot. So the question is, are we actually talking, what are we talking about? Are we talking about do animals communicate? 
what level, right. what depth do they communicate. I think we impose a value system so that a Porsche, when, when you know, when um, uh, Stim, Wilcox, actually shows these animals look like they're thinking, right? And they are, they are anticipating what's gonna happen in the future, in the past. We go, oh, but it's a spider, right? But if we have a, a non-human primate, we go through all these elaborate you know, expectations, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So we impose a value system on it. If it has cognition, it must be greater value. Whales, yeah. primates, greater value, right? And I think that is a, a, a really false paradigm for looking at life. Right. Because anywhere you look on this planet, there are just amazing things going on that have gone through the evolutionary process that we can't really explain. How can, how can you, any of us here, understand, imagine being in a system where the animals are working over, over 100,000 hertz bandwidth. They have three si simultaneous sound production mechanisms. They can perceive sound through multiple channels at the same time. You and I can't even appreciate it. And yet we're trying to make a distinction of whether it has cognition or doesn't have cognition. Do you mean different yeah. sensory systems? Hmm? No, within the same sensory within system. The same auditory. You know, cetaceans will be receiving signals through multiple places in their in their heads. But, right? but then, but then, is it all? Does it all feed in through the same kind of sensory system in the central? Well, eventually, presumably, it ends up somewhere in, in auditory cortex. I'm, I'm asking because there's, I think there's interesting questions here about what we consider to be universes multisensory in communication because we have quite specific we have quite specific sensory systems mm -hmm. um, so if I if I see you and I hear you talking at the same time I've had my auditory and visual cortex etc etc but there's plenty of animals insects for example have a completely separate completely separate system for detecting um, the same chemical signal if it was sent through the air than contact, chemo mm -hmm. right. reception, right? So then do we define do we define a signaling modality on the basis of its production, like it's a vocal signal that's sent through the sea? Or if, if, if there's more completely separate multiple sensory systems for detecting it, does that then become a multi-sensory signal? Is my question. Um, but but in the incitations it sounds like that so they have um, it's just actually one sensory system, but just multiple ways of well, detecting they have it. They have basically receptors into the physical entity called their body that are coming through different parts of their skull. Right. Right. And, and I, I almost want to, this is sort of challenging, but I almost want to say, well, do, does it really matter if we define that they have a multi-sensory system? I think it does matter, yeah. Why does that matter? Because multi-sensory communication is different. Well, who cares if it's different? <laughs> Um, I think it's different cognitively, functionally, that it evolves differently. So does that mean we place a different value on that system that no, has multi-sensory? No, but I think if it's... somehow inflate ourselves and say, oh, wow, we found something that's more complicated than us? Why can't you just enjoy the fact that there's an animal that works at a, up to a 220 kilohertz, right, that has, receives through its jaw, receives through the back sure. of the head, receives through I mean, I, mean, here, I, right? I, I, I right? can appreciate that from right? an aesthetic sense, but as a scientist, I'm also 
interested in studying it and asking questions. In terms of, but also they're visual, they're tactile. They, sure, they, those right. are all sure. like we are. Right. And actually, actually we, we've had a lot of communities. Citations aren't very visual. Are they? they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they, yeah. Have, they, they change yeah. their positions. And they have hourglass. They have they, a visual phobia that works in the air and in the water. We've talked a lot today about human language, for example, and you started touching on gesture. But actually, human language is completely multisensorial from the start. Yeah. Like, it's impossible to make the words that we make without concomitant movements of the lips. And the, this, from looking at people, we get a much, much better understanding of what they're saying. Even if you can only see their lips, if you cut the rest of the head off right, and right, everything, right. if you can just see their lips, right. you get a much better understanding. And, and this visual signal of following the lips is not something that's sort of piggybacked on, that humans have evolved a vocal communication system and then we've added on a bit of kind of visual signal. It's right from the start. Right. The visual signal of watching the lips and, right. the, and the vocal signal coming into the ears are they integrated at the very, very first step of cortical processing. Right. And, and it's the same in non-human primates as well as in humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and your dolphins don't have any facial gestures, right? No, but they, they have... They change their body positions. They have body positions. They... But half of them, most of them can't even see each other when right. they communicate. So there's... Right. Acoustics. Well, that's a... I mean, I, the species I study, they have a series of what are called loud calls, which I think is rather uninformative. But <laughs> they, have, they have calls that can be heard almost a kilometer away. Mm-hmm. And then they have calls that can barely be heard more than a few meters away. Uh, and they use them in different contexts, and, and presumably selection has favored them for having different functions. Um, so there are, I think, so what James was saying there, and, and clearly with the whales, you know, we're looking over a thousand, you know, kilometers of the ability to communicate, the ability to produce and perceive a signal mm-hmm. with no other, uh, with no additional information, no other modality to accompany it, no other visual or gestural or chemical, et cetera. And then we have others that are evolved within this very close multi-dimensional or multi-modality space. And I just think that, that selection favors them for different reasons and in different ways. But they're probably built on some fundamental underlying um, foundation of, of perception and reception and then diverged over time. Great. Thank you guys for coming. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Just ask the audience, so people would like to come up. Um, and use the microphone. I would ask uh, the gentleman who I regretfully had to interrupt, <laughs> yeah. perhaps to be the first to speak. Really? Because I think he's going to yell at me. <laughs> he might be yelling at me. Yeah. No, he's the young Burbitt that needs to be. <laughs> um, no, what I wanted to clarify sure that's on, was, was this. Um, you said that the understanding is created in the receiver. Right. Well, that's true unless the sender and the receiver have previously agreed a set of signals. If the sender and the receiver have previously agreed what the various signals mean, then it's the sender who constructs the semantics and not the receiver. So if I have a very simple system, which is to tell you to turn on a light switch or turn it off, and we agree before that when I raise my arm like this, you turn it off, and when I do this, you turn it on, then I'm the one who's giving meaning to the signal. Now that's important because we may fallaciously have assumed that built into each of us is some standard set which is biologically determined and therefore we have agreement built into us before 
And therefore, when an animal sends out a signal, it's the sender who is generating the information and not the receiver. Namely, if we're all hardwired to, if animals were hardwired to respond to when the tail goes up, there is something hardwired in an animal to say, I know what that means. Not know in the cognitive sense, but, but to know the response. Then indeed it would be the reverse of what you were saying. So I just wanted us to be careful about the, about the fact that we're, we're sort of giving up on informa information theory as it was originally created by Shannon, was exactly this notion that you have this prearranged set of signals from which you are choosing. And so if you're going to use the word information theory, you know, that does presuppose this. And so it's, I think you do need to worry about that. But, sorry, no, I was just going to say, so um, it, if you look at basic like communication books for human communication, you see these diagrams, and we talk about a transactional model. So you've got sender-receiver both being both, because it's a highly dynamic system. You know, you're sender-receiver at the same time. And then the meaning, the sender has a, a, an understanding, like you're saying, they have an idea of what this message is in their head. And the receiver has an idea, but those, the message, there's not an absolute message. They both have a meaning in their heads in terms of the information that's going out, but it may not be the same. That's why there's no inherent meaning in any one message. It's in what they both perceive. Here's an animal communicating. Perfect. This is what we needed. And there it goes. I, I have an interesting, I'm not sure if it... It's all gone. You bring a cute puppy in and it's all... I should have brought a cute puppy to my defense. It would have gone a lot faster. But how, but, how, how, would, you, how would you... I mean, this is all for behavioral signals, but most, most animal communication... A lot of animal communication is not about behavior. I mean, how would you... How would you consider the bright red sexual swelling of an olive baboon, so something that grows and arouses the male? And because it's associated with fertility and blah 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 like we can you know the male gets excited and this and that and the other and he copulates and blah blah and and for, from the male's perspective it may be that he he has some idea about that in terms of um, where it's going maybe I, he doesn't but but then no. <laughs> certainly there's nothing going on in the female's head right it's just a morphological growth right right some standard patterns that are common just from, from our genetics, then there is information that can go from one to the other, which is valid and clear and, and is not subject to all this, we don't know what's going on inside their heads. That's, that's the point I'm trying to make to you. Right, but the precise information that the receiver would take from it will always depend on the receiver, on, on, their, ability to on their ability to perceive it, their sensory systems, their experience, the, all these things are going to nuance how they're going to interpret the signal. Not necessarily. It could be that you always do exactly the same thing when you get this signal. I think it can be, but I think a lot of animal communication is not like that. <laughs> yes, um, I always thought that um, what distinguishes language from other forms of communication that language has underlying grammar. And I was just wondering, is it true that all human languages have an underlying grammar? And that, has anyone found underlying grammar for any form of animal communication? And if not, is anybody even looking into that? 
Well, we talked a little bit about the animal communication stuff earlier with chimps and teaching them simple structures. Is there any structures. grammar? Is there any um, Well, grammar let's, let's go to the human language stuff. A very interesting thing to read is this fellow Jemmy Button. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he was a. Uh, whenever the uh, Darwin went down on the Beagle, they kidnapped Jemmy Button, a young boy about 10, and took him to England and taught him everything. He went to Isle, Cambridge, you name it. And they taught him all sorts of foreign languages and everything else. And so, one of the things that was very popular in the United States also in the 1600s was to kidnap an Indian and bring him to Europe and teach him all sorts of different languages. The most famous one was Samuel Ockham, who apparently was a genius of all imaginable sizes. And he's the one that actually scared up the money for all the Ivy League colleges because they said, if you can do that with an Indian, what's next, you know? So it, apparently any human being from anywhere in the world can learn any language anywhere with no trouble at all. The most complicated language most linguists agree is a language called Walpiri, which is spoken at Ayers Rock in Australia. It has cases beyond anybody's imagination for what cases could be. Children learn it flawlessly with no effort whatsoever. Adults have one hell of a time. There are two people that I've met in my life that can learn, they're both deceased now, but they can learn any human language on exposure for about a year and be totally fluent. This ability usually disappears in most people, but it doesn't in all. So it seems to be the case that there's an inherent thing in people's heads that enables them to learn languages that are really honest to God spoken by other human beings. Now, when it comes down to animals, we were talking about this earlier, what kinds of symbol systems can they use? And can they use mathematics? And can they use symbols for different sorts of things? Uh, just offhand, it's the, to my own feeling on this is they don't tend to symbolize their activities. It's no particular reason why they should symbolize their activities. I think with all the things you're talking about, they do gestural sorts of things and interpret each other's gestures rather than noises. And human beings tend to be visual creatures that like sounds. And so, uh, I mean, I've seen uh, uh, movies of uh, animals that watched people do things and then they started doing them too, you know? And maybe they learn that, by that kind of a system. But there's something very unusual about the human being that it's a total symbol using creature. And in fact, uh, we talk about the messages and the message content. In Shannon's thing, there's no message content at all. In fact, he has a sentence in there that gets many people mad. He says, I don't even care if there are messages. He just wants to know how many telephone. You know, if you if you have your if your cell phone breaks, and you take it to the dealer, he's not going to say, "What do you talk about?" He don't care. And he's not going to say, "What language do you use?" He doesn't care. He's going to plug a bunch of gizmos in and get it back working. If your TV breaks, the guy's not going to say, "What do you watch, John Wayne movies?" <laughs> it, it doesn't make any difference. He's going to make. He's going to put a bunch of signals through that thing that are going to be jagged lines, big round balls, you know, crazy colors. And if it if it absorbs all of those weirdo things, then it works perfectly. And that's what most syntax and Chomsky type stuff is. It's finding those structures that define the boundaries, the outer boundaries of human language structures, independent of what the meanings might be. So are any of those structures found in language because animals? Yeah. Uh, well, it, there's a huge, as you can see, there's huge amounts of debate about there's this kind of stuff. Maybe the closest thing is the putty nose. Gwen on. Say you're going to bring up Zuber Bueller. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. um, so the the, the putty nose Gwenon has a system. I mean, we're just starting to explore these systems, right? But they have a system where they use one particular call, a piao call for a leopard, or ground-based predator at least, and a hat core which they use for aerial threats. So they're two different predator type responses. And then they combine those two calls in specific form um, when they want to travel. 
So they use they use some combination of between two and five piao calls, followed by some combination of between two and five hack calls in a sequence. They go piao piao hack hack hack, and then and then they all move out. Um, so that's quite interesting-ish, but um, quite quite exactly what's going on in those kind of systems. I guess we have no idea, but but the the the, the the vocalizations themselves seem to be sort of at least some sort of functional referentiality in what they do, and then they're also combined in other contexts. I think we've uh, made a mistake here today that we were confusing, in my terminology, language and speech. Well, that's speech is what difference. humans do. Right. Bees have language. Other species have language. Can we, de right? can we define language? Did we do no, you yet? said you couldn't do it. I couldn't do it, but, but you I think yeah. what the question there was about was speech. No, no grammar. 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 So bees don't have language. I, I don't know. How would you define language? If I might interject. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, so, now, so what you've done is you've invented definitions that exclude anything right. but humans. Exactly. So that's a useless concept. Right, no, but how do we do? But with, I have an excellent evolutionary or uh, behavioral ecology definition of communication, but I so don't have language. a definition of language. But people have talked about language as a set of agreed upon symbols that are used conventionally, and people like Hockett and others have listed, based on human language, right. certain design features that we do, such as grammar, such as productivity, such as using symbolic forms, such as arbitrariness. I mean, they're like right. 18 things. Just as an example, just to say, how can we com compare what other species do with what we call language? Do right. other species show any of the properties of human language? Not forcing it into a language game, right. but just saying this is how we do it. So we do have <laughs> metrics like that. Yeah. And many animals do show many of those design features. It, again, if we, what if we throw out the word language? Just let's throw out the word language and say that's what we do. Right. And other animals may use, and that's our kind of communication system, and it could be nonverbal or verbal. Okay. Sure. And then we've got other animal communication systems, and we can call that X, Y, and Z. It's not better or worse. They're right. just different. Uh, certainly not higher. That would be a little bit more. But would you, would you distinguish the dialogue that we've been carrying on here, which is through the modality of speech, and the kind of almost universal awe sound that went out when the puppy came in? I would distinguish between those two. So I would I would consider one a, a kind of a, a vocal communication, a vocal signal that is probably to some degree inherent or or uh, inherited. Arousal based. Arousal based and reflexive and and inherited and, yeah. and therefore probably has an evolutionary tract. Whereas the words that are coming out of my mouth are have to be learned. So we have emotive signals, right? And we have something that's non-emotive signaling. Right. But then, but it doesn't have to be speech. It doesn't have to be acoustic, right? Right? It doesn't have to be. The motive can be non-intentional, right? Blushing. You have an emotion. You blush. So there's this realm of all these signals. But I think we're still stuck with this idea that what we do is we that we call language. No other animal can have it. As Chris is saying, we're pri we're a priorily saying that. You know, this is language, this is better, and no other animal can really do it because we've already said what it is. Right. We're letting, I mean, we do this with all sorts of things. Yeah, with I mean, it. I don't yeah, have sure. tools. It's clearly circular. Yeah, and yeah, I would never put circular. language on any sort of hierarchy to say it's, you know, better or worse, but just an ability to somehow distinguish it, which is why I continue to bring up the uh, inhuman in non linguistic communication of crying and laughing and things like that, which are evolved traits that have a communicative function. And, and I would, I would have, have no difficulty distinguishing those from 
uh, spoken or written or, or sign language that is learned. And that is based on a shared understanding of these symbols. So I, since I don't find that difficult to distinguish between crying and laughing and, and the use of, of written or spoken language, um, I, I'm not sure why then we'd have such a hard time distinguishing human language from non-linguistic forms in other species. Please. I would like to make a comment on the complexity of the communication systems. And I happen to know a guy who was saved by dolphins. So, <laughs> and I'm going to tell about it. So, <clears throat> uh, they, they, with friends, they have a boat. Sometimes they go to a particular island, and from there they put boat there and swim to the smaller island where they have, where there is very good beach and uh, a lot of dolphins also near, nearby. But once he he stayed by himself too long on this smaller island. And suddenly, weather changed, and uh, he, and he decided to go as as fast as possible to the boat. But in the middle, waves became bigger and bigger, and wind became bigger and bigger, and he got a panic attack. And he did not know where to go back to to the this small island to be saved or to the boat because it was something in the middle. And suddenly, he felt something um, above, <laughs> below him. And it was dolphins who created the wave. They did not touch him, they created the wave. And very fast moved him to the boat. So this panic attack was like a message for them. And they know where to go. They understood where he wants to go. Although he already was in the doubt. So, and when they brought him to boat, they just left. And that was it. And um, <clears throat> I don't know how, how, and actually I could give anyone the contact information of this guy, so you could, you could know, uh, hear it by, him, by yourself. So, um, and that's, uh, these, um, um, this event uh, uh, saying, uh, uh, telling us about that there is a very complex system of communication. It was complex message for them. This panic attack, they understood what's going on, what they could do, and where this whatever creature it is should go and why. They did not help him as they probably help their own, um, their, their, um, uh, their own, no, the member of their own uh, species. So, one of the questions, maybe our languages that we consider very complex, and they actually help us to develop very uh, complex technology that, for example, um, uh, improve only uh, one hour function to um, like like uh, like iPhone. Maybe they much more primitive than what actually um, animals using in their communications. And actually, one of, other, of my other friends saying that. Uh, uh, animals don't need to develop these symbolic languages because 
they don't need them. They just don't need it because their life is much more complex than ours. We sitting here without anything around except only humans. And we just with using these uh, our languages that we destroying, we creating complex technology which is destroying environment and actually it's not very smart. So there's the question, what is more complex? And what is, they are living and we are sitting and talking. And I'm not saying that I'm, <laughs> like I, I don't dis distinguish myself from the, I'm also uh, choosing to live in city, not in, in nature and whatever it could be said about this. But anyway, what's their system of communications is more complex. Well, you know, I, I'd like to respond to that real quickly because, you know, historically there have been reports of dolphins saving people, even, again, back in Greek times, a right Aryan being rescued by the dolphin. And I get a lot of letters from people who say they've been rescued. You know, one of the things we've seen in not just dolphins, but in, in other animals like elephants and certainly primates, uh, where a child, will be fall, a child will fall into an enclosure at a zoo. And uh, it was, I think, a gorilla that held this child till the keepers could get out. Franz Duval, who's a well-known primatologist, was just giving a talk this weekend about this. And it seems that whether it's communication, per se, it may not be communication, but there's some awareness on the part of the animal, perhaps, of the plight of that organism. And, you know, well, you're going, eh, you know. I mean, that's well, let me, let me wild just, dogs just did to that kid yeah, in, in the zoo. I mean, that's a very But different. those are wild hunting dogs. Those right. are predators. These right. are, these, okay, so that may be different. It may not be all animals are the same. But nevertheless, um, there are several animal species that show helping, caregiving behavior that's not hardwired. Our colleague Ken Norris has shown that with dolphins and whales, they their behavior is flexible. If you you know, oh. one could argue yeah, that a dolphin that's a land that's an air-breathing animal, it could have been selected for that they would hold up anything that's air-breathing at the surface because that would save an organism that they're related to or, or another dolphin. So it's hardwired, but they don't do it. It's not hardwired. Right. You can see them not holding up all flailing animals. I mean, we've all watched that. So there's some there's some selection there. I don't know what that selection is, but you do hear about it. So I, I just want to argue that I think there is something that may not be based on communication, but on perception or the plight of another that we would call empathy. And I think there's a high degree of learning there, too, because I think the examples where uh, non-humans step in and, and are, are somehow protective or, or, or indicate some sort of protection response to human infants um, tend to be very highly publicized. They also tend to be in zoos or with captive no, or trained Not with wild dolphins. That's not the really? case. There are many cases, and I have a whole collection of them, uh -huh. of wild dolphins. We don't know their whole history if right, they're right. wild, but have done this kind of... Little Ileon Gonzalez, famous case. He was, he was hanging on that inner tube, and he told a colleague of mine who was with him and Diane Sawyer in an interview that as he slid off the inner tube, dolphins pushed him, much like you were saying, back up into the inner tube. So, of course, the skeptic in all of us says, the kid's hallucinating, he's been out there, you know, the whole thing. But the fishermen who came on the, res at the rescue boat saw the dolphins, and they left when he approached. Interesting. So let's not jump too fast. No, certainly not. Uh, well, my question uh, is related to um, whether um, studying disorders uh, in animals could help us uh, to learn about their communication or language. Um, I just remembered how uh, some people were suggesting um, that 
that it's helpful to understand schizophrenia as a disorder of language, for example, uh, and how um, many many things that we understand in the field of psychiatry or neurology, we we reach there by seeing uh, what's wrong, what doesn't work, actually, not not what works. Uh, so my question is, does how how is this applied into the animal communication, and what are is there limitations for this or? I think there's loads of different ways. I mean, you mentioned mental, kind of mental disorders, but there's also a lot of sensory disorders. So people are interested in, you know, sort of color blindness in macaques and understanding sensory perception according to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> according to things like this. So, so I think there's there's a whole there's people that are interested in individuals with. Um, sensory defects and trying to understand communication um, from those perspectives. Um, and that's quite interesting, particularly in vision, because um, color, the way our luminance and color vision works, which I'm not going to go into in great amount of detail, but, but um, basically we have a, um, a, a sort of corruption of how light and dark we can detect things as a consequence of our evolution of trichromacy, so dichromats. Um, dichromatic anthropoids, di dichromatic humans, supposedly have better kind of depth perception and various other things. In the, in the Second World War, the RAF used to have a, a colorblind man in every squadron, uh, apocryphally possibly. Um, the, uh, in terms of kind of, um, I mean, I think there's a lot of models of depression, um, uh, negativity bias, things like that, where people are interested in understanding animal communication. So they're, they're looking at, uh, you know, in, in mice and rats, but also in non-human primates, rearing individuals that have had different types of upbringing, um, then can get, the t you can see types of effects that we would classify as being depression. So you, you show depressed individuals are characterized by, th by negativity biases, essentially. Like wh when you show them things that they should be happy about, they still think it's really, really bad regardless. Um, and you can, you can get similar effects. You get very, very similar effects in, um, in non-human animals, depending on their prior experience. And I, I think they, used to touch they also use um, non-human primates of some of the New World monkeys to look at stress and, and monitor through the, the vocal uh, modifications. Right. I don't, I don't know if that's what sort of along the same lines of your question. But. Yes, I mean, in general, because some people were saying that you can, animals cannot have schizophrenia, for example, like this was my basic order, because they're, they're like, they don't have our language, and schizophrenia is a sort of language, so crazy animals are not like our, our schizophrenics. I mean, they can. They can. I mean, they use extensively as models of things like anxiety and depression and things. Certainly, and and it's important, I think, for our own studies that we understand these things that for, for for animal communication, but also for kind of human medicine. Like we we often we're often trying drugs on testing drugs on rats and mice and things that are actually not normal mice and rats. Like depending on how they've been reared, they, they re re will react completely differently to the same kind of, the same medicine, right? Or if they're males or females. Because of time constraints, I'm sorry, we're, uh, these three gentlemen are going to have to be our last question. We'll be more succinct. <laughs> Many years ago, 
myself being not involved much with animals, I found myself uh, running a mental hospital in a rural area. And uh, they provided a house for me to live in. Uh, somebody gave me a, a, a pet. It was a bird, it was a cockatiel. And I had no real relationship to this bird. Uh, it flew around this big gold place, and I sort of sat around, you know, wondering what the hell I'm doing there. And there was this bird. One day it snowed. Now, apparently, this bird had come from Brazil or some jungle area where there was no snow. And I was a city kid, was always fascinated. Concept that snow was covering everything up. So I look out the window, and everything was covered in white. All the fields, all the campus, everything, trees and white. And I'm just looking at this, and suddenly, right beside me, perched on a little bookshelf, uh, Irma, the, the bird, is also looking at this. I didn't know Irma was looking at this. So then I, I looked at Irma, and Irma looked at me. And we both knew that we were seeing something very interesting that we had not seen before. And not only did we know that, we were seeing something that we had not seen before, but we suddenly knew that each of us was knowing that we knew each of us was knowing that. <laughs> and I was shocked. And so was Irma. I bet she was. As soon as, Irma, as soon as she realized that I understood what she was seeing, and she understood what I was seeing, and that we both understood what either of us was seeing, she flew away in panic uh, to the next floor of this place I was living in. Now, I, 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 that was, a, 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 to me, a, a terribly emotional experience. I had never, never conceived that a, a, an animal would look at something the way I was looking at it and, knew, and know that I was looking at my whole view of animals changed in that momentary flash. So I, I would ask this then, a comment about receivers and uh, senders. Uh, are there any experiments in which uh, animals perceive something and communicate this to humans in such a way that there's a mutual understanding going on? And is this, has this document, is, is any of this documented? That's my question. Dogs? I hope you don't. Uh, for birds. Um, too much time on it. Thank I mean, there's, there's plenty of examples of humans and birds having a communication system. Again, what goes on in their head is unclear. So the, 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 really, the really classic example is the honey guide. You know, you know the honey guide? It's a type of African bird that it, it finds honey. And when it finds honey, it flies to the village and it does a little song. That means I found that people interpret it to mean it's found honey. The people from the village then come out and the bird flies and it stops on a branch and then it, and it keeps doing the call and then the people move towards it and it leads them to the honey. Because the bird is not capable of getting the honey out of the bees' nest. It needs people to smoke the bees out. The people then smoke out the bees. Um, they get all the honey out of the nest. They take most of the honey and then they leave a big comb. And then the bird comes straight down and eats all the comb. Um, so it's an amazing kind of um, interspecific communication, but, but what's actually going on in the bird's head is quite another matter. <laughs>
worthy of exploration. Sure. Can I, can I take one second to tell a really fast story? I tell this in my book. It's called The Time Out. I was working with a dolphin in the south of France as part of my PhD thesis. And I was using a technique the trainers will often use. I was training her to stay in front of me and eat fish that had been frost, defrosted and thawed and cut into three pieces, right? And she was, a, she was a fairly young dolphin. She didn't have much experience. Her name was Circe. And she learned very quickly within a day to stay in front of me. But when she did, so I put the bucket up. And if she was there, I'd give her a fish. If she swam away, I gave her timeout, which meant walking away about 10 feet away from the pool and just standing vertical and breaking the social contact. So I was cutting the fish into heads, middles, and tails because it was big mackerel and she wasn't eating the whole mackerel. She ate the heads, she ate the middles, she was spitting out the tails, so I cut the tails so that they no longer had the fins. So now she's learned to stay by me using the timeout as a correction mechanism. And I was, um, I was standing at the tank after she had been doing this pretty long and she wasn't leaving the pool, uh, the position, and by accident I threw her an uncut tail. And she went to the other side of the pool, looked up at me, spit out the tail, went to the other side of the pool and took a vertical position. And I'm, you're laughing, this is, I was laughing too, and I thought she couldn't possibly have just given me a timeout. Now, that's an, because that's what we're talking, that's an anecdote, but as a scientist, I could never report that. So then I turned it into an experiment, which was the unplanned experiment as part of my doctoral thesis. I was doing visual discrimination on dolphins and all this stuff. So I waited, and now I'm feeding her the next day, I'm giving her all the properly cut fish, and she stays, and then the next day on purpose, I gave her another uncut tail, and boom, she goes across the pool, does it again. So I think that's a beautiful example of how we synchronize our patterns of behavior, and perhaps there is more joint attention and mutual understanding in how other animals can do it. So that, I just thought I'd answer that. Yeah. It was my understanding growing up when I read these texts about animal behavior that, uh, that, you know, that intelligence was defined as your ability to learn and then after I take whatever they learned from the experience, which is you know based on chance or other occurrences, to then actively use it to solve problems. That was generally the accepted uh, definition of intelligence. And also uh, relation with communication and language. I think was that I guess you say that language is a form of communication, but not all communication is language. But uh, with this, yeah, a lot of cases where language is used to discourage communication. Yeah, as we all know, instant, no instances of that. And uh, um, what we're also getting to is that, with, that the ability of, of, of animals learning from each other is, uh, I can think of the uh, Japanese monkey, the macaco fuscata, that uh, they come to the with the, the thing of a sweet potato, dipping it into salt water and finding it to rinse off the dirt and also it makes it, uh, makes it tastier for them. And the other thing is with it, giving them handful of, you know, armful of, uh, you know, set of rice mixed with sand and they figure it, one figured out to the, that you drop it in the water, that the rice will fall to the surface and the sand will sink. And the other monkeys start picking, well, and, they, and they've been able to communicate this to each other how to do, how to do that. And I'm just curious what the, what the mechanism is and whether they're, whether does it just boil down to the old, uh, Phrase monkey see monkey do. Go for that. I think I think it probably is monkey see monkey do. Um, the, there's uh, teaching, as far as we we know, is not very commonly observed. Really, I mean, it depends on how you d define it, but but there's there's no real good proof of teaching as opposed to just kind of observational evidence and repetition and things like this. And actually, it's quite interesting because so when you the definition between teaching and repetition. Um, the, the individual undertaking the behavior is doing it specifically with the aim of 
the other individual learning how to do it, and rather than they're just doing it. Another individual. There's non-optimal repetition. So, for example, in the you know in the famous um, Gombe chimps with the, getting the termites, people will watch the the adult female will sit there for hours and stick the stick in and pull the ants out or pull the termites out, and the young ones will sit and watch very intently, and people. At first, sort of casually say, oh, well, they're, they're teaching, the mother's teaching the young ones, because eventually the older one learns how to do it, and they go through a lot of trial and error, and they do it very poorly. The, the distinguishing characteristics is that if there were actual teaching going on, the mother would be, or the adult female in that situation, would be doing it non-optimally. She wouldn't simply be optimizing her own ability to get the termites. She would be doing it slower. She would be changing her body position. She would be correcting the young one. So there she, are, when she's there are finished, thousands of examples in humans that we call teaching that go right with your second definition. Of, so we right. are we call it teaching, but it's not teaching. If there's no, if it's not intentional, if we're, I mean, I learned how to change a tire watching my dad uh, before he actually took the time to teach So me. when I watch a wild killer whale parent go and grab a seal off the beach mm -hmm. and then take it and put it in front of their offspring and give it to the offspring and the offspring sort of plays with it and whatever and the seal runs away the mother goes and gets it again and puts it back in front of the seal the baby and that she is isn't she teaching just they uh, went my point to the that the 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 and experiential opportunities. But the situations that you described, and also with the cats, is they didn't actually teach them to do the kill. They provided opportunities for them to practice the skills that were innate. So what do you call a, 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 a woman teaching 10-year-olds in a school? You don't call it teaching? I call it a stereotype. What? That, sorry. What are we talking about? <laughs> so what you what you what you just described what you just described is is a is a perfect description of what many humans do to other humans, and we call it teaching. But you just said it's not teaching. I'm not sure I follow you. Okay. Well, I, just go through your sure. definition. Go through that example again. You just described teaching. Right. I well, mean, that, I mean, I, th I think when it, gets, I think I think when it gets to some of these, I think yeah, when it gets to some of these sorts of cases, it gets semantic. very close. And I think um, again, there's a, the, yes, <laughs> and I think it should be done over glasses of whiskey. Since, since we're running out of time, I'll, I'll just there seem to be some interest in this whole animal saving humans thing, and I, there's not really any need to go to zoos or even talk about saving saving humans because there's endless examples of animals saving other animals of completely different species. There are lions that have saved baby you know, antelope. Uh, there are lions that have saved, uh, fought off the other lions to protect a kid that fell into the zoo. I mean, there's, there's, there's just countless examples. So there's no need to distinguish predator or not predator or zoo or not zoo. There's, just, there's a lot of them. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Fantastic. All right. Thank you for your audience.